Welcome to Tech Talk with Optimal RX. My name is Kristen Gilmore. I'm here with Julianne Grant, and we are ready to talk herbal medicine. Kristen and I are both practicing naturopaths with 25 years experience between us. As big herb nerds, we are excited to explore all things phytotherapy and health with you. Hello and welcome. Julianne and I are so thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Janet Schloss, who recently recorded a really clinically useful webinar for us on the topic of phytomedicine in cancer prevention, which is part of our upcoming oncology series. Now, Janet is a clinical research fellow and lecturer at the National Center for Naturopathic Medicine, or NCNM, and she is an accomplished researcher with extensive experience in coordinating clinical trials. And in addition to her academic career, Janet is also a practicing clinical nutritionist and naturopath with over 20 years experience. Following the completion of her doctorate in 2015, Janet has focused her research on supporting people who have cancer through studying the use of complementary medicines to assist side effects of chemotherapy and radiation treatments. Janet works with a number of oncologists and she consults extensively with patients being treated for cancer and autoimmune conditions to reduce the likelihood of metastasis, tumor growth, and inflammation while building immune modulation and improving overall health and well-being. Janet has also completed a number of groundbreaking studies and has over 50 publications in clinical naturopathy, cancer, and autoimmune diseases, some of which have gained widespread national media attention. Janet has also lectured in naturopathy, nutrition, and student clinic supervision for over 14 years, and prior to her appointment at NCNM, was the clinical trials manager at Endeavour College of Natural Health. And in addition to her role at NCNM, Janet is a research fellow and a member of the International Naturopathic Leadership Group with the Australian Research Centre for Complementary and Integrative Medicine and is a member of the Australian Traditional Medicine Society, the Society of Integrative Oncology and the American Society of Clinical Oncology. So welcome, Janet. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to both of you. Oh, it's our pleasure too. And as we can all tell from your extensive bio, you really know your stuff when it comes to cancer. So in terms of cancer prevention, this is just such an important area to look at. And I think sometimes it is a little bit overlooked. And as herbalists and, and naturopaths, we know that we can have such a profound impact in this area of disease prevention. So I think for Firstly, we wanted to ask you, how do you educate your patients around the genetic risks for developing cancer? And how do you counsel your patients so that when they get, say, a positive genetic test result regarding cancer risk, that this information can be empowering rather than a, a fearful piece of information? Yeah, you know, really well said first is that um, one of the biggest things with cancer is the fear component and the stigmatism associated with it. And I love the fact that you just said empowering your, your patients but rather than coming from a place of fear because that's what we should all be doing for at any stage through the whole lot. But going back to your question in regards to how I counsel in, in regards to genetic testing, if people do want to have genetic testing, there's usually two reasons why they do. Number one, they do have a familial history of it and they're just wanting to, to see if they have any of these particular predispositions. Another one is just the fear 
of what could be in the future. So they want to do a preventative type work. In most of the cases, then you actually have to, to talk to them about, you know, if they get the test, what are they going to do about it? Because, you know, if you, if you do find out, if you don't do anything, why did you get it done in the first place? Mm. So it's about educating them, number one, about how and what they're going to do. So if they find out that they have a predisposition to certain cancers, would they be willing to be able to put things into place to make sure they actually prevent it? Now, if they are and that's why they're getting the test, then that's fantastic. Um, if they're not and they're just trying to, to find out, then it may not actually be worth them getting the test. Yeah, well, that's such a good point. Yeah. The other thing is, is that, you know, even if you get a genetic predisposition, doesn't mean that you're always going to get cancer mm-hmm. for that particular. You're um, predisposed to that but it doesn't mean that people get it. And a lot of people actually get cancer with no genetic background as well. Mm-hmm. So that that's the, the hard part and they have to be aware and know how they're going to deal with that before going forward. And that's where I said that's that real empowering system before they actually get the genetic testing done. That's beautifully said. And I think I have um, spoken to some, some friends recently who have had family members that have been diagnosed with certain cancers and um, they're getting tested for the for the different genetic sort of predispositions. And I think that's the key word there, the predisposition. So it's not your, your definite, your resolute, what's going to eventually happen. It's just about risk. And there's so many risks in the world for so many different things. It's about mitigating those risks and giving you the, the confidence and the tools to be able to transform yourself from health you know sort of stage to to health actually agree can i just make one more point on it that you know particularly things like the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene um, and Lynch syndrome if if someone in the family who hasn't had cancer before actually tests positive for them uh, a private health fund won't cover them for that particular type of cancer and they need to keep that in mind as well so even if uh, someone in the family has it, if they have a daughter or a son or family members, they have to make that decision. If they actually get tested, their private health fund won't cover them. Wow. Wow. So that's basically have the test, comes back positive. If you end up developing that breast cancer or what have you, then you're actually not covered for treatment via your private health fund Correct. That because you've had the test. Wow. And if you, don't yeah. ha- if you don't have the test, you're actually covered even though like a family member's actually had that cancer. Wow. Because I guess with private health funds, they look at your history and then decide what your risk is as someone who's going to be a burden, so to speak, on the medical system, right? And what that yeah. might cost. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, Janet. Julianne here, by the way. Nice to be chatting with you today. And thank you for your wonderful webinar on uh, cancer prevention. It's really, it's such a good series this oncology series and we're so grateful for your time and your expertise here and I loved um oh look I loved all of it but I, we're going to pick apart some of the little bits and pieces go on our own tangents as we did but one of the uh initial topics in the webinar is obviously different risk factors and one of those risk factors that we don't have a lot of control over is aging and it seems to be one of the biggest risk factors and you pointed to a few reasons behind that such as you know weakened cancer checkpoints and 
um, I guess a depleted immune activity, increased inflammation or low, low grade chronic inflammation. I'm just wondering if you could explain that, that the impact of aging in that cancer microenvironment a little bit more for us. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. You know, you've got to love geneticists who, or generics who, who do the research into um, ageing and they come up with their own little wording, which is um, one of the things they actually call it is called implementing, which <laughs> I know I didn't even know that was a word until I did a seminar on ageing. And um, what <laughs> they have actually given this little cluster the whole name of imaging. So Im imaging, implementing, if I get it out properly. Um, and basically what it says, as we actually age, our production of our white cells redu reduce dramatically, for some people up to 200%, So, which is a big diet. The other problem is that, um, and this is some of the things that cause it, are things like what's called cross-linking or garb ageing, which basically means our proteins don't fold or, or get into the right position, so then they're, they're non-functional. And some of that is can be our checkpoints. So our main checkpoints, which is P53 and, and P21, are proteins. Mm. So what can actually happen is, is this cross-linking or, or garbaging, whereby we have this misfolding, so our checkpoints then actually don't function properly, and then cells can actually um, de like develop or abnormally. We also have what's called sen uh, senequence cells, which basically means that cells who um, are non-functional anymore but refuse to die. So we have all these cells that are going around that don't function um, but refuse to die and then in like affect our other cells. And all of this then causes this low-grade inflammatory type response, which then is adds to that like little perfect storm of cancer development. Yeah. And it's scary. Like you think, you know, I'm in that aging bracket, right? I mean, aren't we all, let's be honest, but like, it's scary to think of, <laughs> to think of it like that because you sort of go, well, we're all aging. So perhaps we don't have a lot of control over that, but we actually do in a way. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. So, and this is where naturopaths and herbalists become super important in this space, I think. But as a practitioner who specializes in this area, what are your kind of go-to lifestyle changes for people in that aging bracket um, that might be a bit more at risk? And do you use any herbal medicines as anti-aging herbal medicines? I don't actually call them, I guess, I don't call it anti-aging, um, but I do look at it as in a protection type of effect. Yeah. And yeah, I do definitely have herbal medicines that I have that are go-tos. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's a number of things that, I definitely look at number one, you know, is always nutrient deficiencies, um, signs of that low grade inflammatory type response to joint pains, not being able to work, things aren't functioning as well, you know, making sure they stay hydrated, making sure they're still exercising and, and doing things rather than sitting at home, um, making sure they're like not just physically active, but mentally active as well, because all of that actually comes into play. And on a herbal medicine side, definitely I want to reduce that low-grade inflammatory type response. So obviously it depends on what medication that they're actually taking or no medication, but using like anti-inflammatory herbs that can be used long-term, it might probably my go-to always is turmeric. Uh, for some people it will be ginger and stuff as well for it. But like there's definitely other ones that also help with their immune system and that's the most important. I think important as well. So it's decreasing the inflammation as well as supporting their immune system because they're not producing the same amount of white cells that they actually used to. So I definitely use things like um, 
astragalus, probably from my talk will know it's one of my favourite herbs. Yeah. <laughs> Cordyceps, so the medicinal mushrooms come into play a lot in regards to that. And then, like I said, the turmeric or licorice. So they're still, they're, depending on the person, will depend on what the mix or what I actually give them for it. But there's definitely so many things that we can do to support the person as we age because, yes, it is one of those factors that we can't change, but we can do it gracefully. Yeah. Like and that. we can assist the process. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And I think, I mean, lifestyle strategies are huge, are huge. And herbal medicine clearly can support all of those processes in a beautiful way. And I particularly love um, immunomodulators or herbal medicine immunomodulators such as cordyceps and astragalus. I use a lot of that in clinic as well, Janet. So I'm on the same um, bandwagon you are there with those herbs. But just to improve that surveillance, right, that immune surveillance to kind of pick these things up in the early stage. So I love I loved hearing about that. And just staying along the lines of risk factors, stress is obviously one of those primary risk factors. And you mentioned that in your webinar. And it, you know, it promotes this low-grade inflammation, this chronic inflammation over time. Are you able to, again, a little bit like you did with aging, just jump into why stress might might create that kind of cancer microenvironment? And how does stress management help? You know, how do we help there? Yeah, you know. Stress management is my biggest thing in prevention of cancer. Wow. Like it's my number one pillar. Okay. And we're exposed to it on exponential uh, amount these days. And it's not the acute stress. The acute stress, you know, we're always going to be exposed to to a certain thing. It's actually the, the long-term chronic stress that causes the actual problem. Mm. And many of us work and like really long hours, you know, we not only work, particularly if you're female, but for males as too, you have family life that you actually have. You've got kids that you've actually got to look after. There's all the pandemic type things at the moment, which adds on to that extra stress. And there's a, every, you're always going to be exposed to some form of stress. But, and I'll get about how that adds to or, or is linked with cancer. But those, having those stress management techniques, because we are going to be exposed to stress all the time, comes into play that allows us to go from that constant fight, flight, sympathetic dominance back into our parasympathetic response. And it's that parasympathetic response, our relaxation, which comes from um, stress management techniques and being able to switch the mind off, which is what can be quite a hard thing to do, which allows um, our bodies to recoup. It actually helps with our, our cellular functioning. It actually helps with reducing our DNA mutations because of our checkpoints are able to do it it reduces uh, our blood glucose levels our heart rate like all of these factors come into play but i'm going to go back to why stress leads to cancer and it's actually quite interesting a lot of people who you actually talk to and i mean i've been in oncology or dealing with people with oncology for a, a long time a lot of them will actually say i had a, a, a big chronic stress event for quite a few years before i got diagnosed and not that it is, but I definitely put it as a risk factor. And what actually happens is obviously when you're in that fight and flight sympathetic dominance and you're not coming out of it, it's okay for a little while, but when it lasts for now months and for sometimes up to years, your corticosteroids and, and catecholines that you're actually eliminate, like continuing to send out slowly reduce. Your, it actually affects your immune system. So your immune system actually reduces. It reduces your, your thymus gland. It reduces your, your spleen. It actually increases pro-inflammatory cytokines like um, interleukin-6 and, and TNF-alpha within your actual body. 
So they start circulating and you don't even realise a lot of it's happening. And then the other thing is, is that most people aren't even aware of their body at this stage. It's all within their actual head. So all of it allows for what I always call a perfect storm to, to then occur. A lot of people have chronic stress and never get cancer. A lot of people do lots of bad things that you should they should get cancer and don't. But then there's other people who do all the right things and still get cancer. But stress management is definitely one that we can be aware of and put things into place. Yeah, and I think it goes across all chronic disease states, doesn't it? For exactly the reasons you've just said, it sets you up. It's those building blocks to chronic disease. Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely think that stress is one of our biggest risk factors for all chronic disease. Oh, and it's such a, it's so great to hear you talk like that too, because I think sometimes things like stress and sleep and exercise and diet, things that are, have been pillars of, of, you know, good health can sometimes almost be dismissed because they seem a little bit too generic or a little bit too simple or a little bit too um, widely applicable, but it, you know, everything that you just said really emphasises why that chronic stressful exposure has to be addressed for nearly every aspect of our health. Absolutely. Yeah. And I totally agree with everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all going to be like that throughout the whole <laughs> <laughs> But um, you also mentioned in your webinar that viruses uh, have a huge involvement in cancer and that actually post-viral syndrome can be something to look for and address in terms of prevention. And I think that also could possibly tie in with that, uh, what you mentioned before with people have had a very stressful event or they might have had a really bad viral infection and then perhaps never been well since or something like that. So could you explain now for our listeners how post-viral syndrome actually sets up our internal environment for cancer growth? And specifically, what symptoms do you look for in your patients to indicate that they may have post-viral syndrome? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think most people are probably aware of post-viral syndrome, but there's definitely certain viruses that have been linked with specific types of cancers. And it's being aware if you actually do get one of those viruses that you need to put things into place early to make sure that it doesn't progress and affect uh, your, your DNA um, and the changes that can actually happen because of that. It is like an epigenetic type response. And post-viral syndrome, as most of you know, you've been exposed to the virus, you're actually tired, but then comes like months afterwards, you're still quite fatigued um, and it's heading towards what I call like that chronic fatigue type, type syndrome. So looking for like symptoms, I would say like the brain fog, not being able to concentrate properly. That um, for me that there's like four or five different types of tiredness. So it's that whole body fatigue it's a general tiredness where you just can't get up and do anything so what that's showing me is that low-grade inflammatory response is actually there they're picking things up very easy like different viruses or, or stomach things um, so their their immune system is hyper vigilant uh, if they're predisposed to things like eczema or asthma that starts to come on because again it's starting to stimulate that over-immune type response. So that's what I would actually be looking at. And again, why does that predispose them to cancer? Well, number one, like I said, particular viruses can actually affect the DNA and has an epigenetic type effect that then can stimulate that type of cancer growth within that cell. So we need the immune system to come back into to play properly 
and and work so that it can actually be picked up and so that it knows that there is a cancer or abnormal cells starting to be developed and then get rid of it. The other thing is, again, that laboratory response, the effects, the cells, how they actually function, that also increases the, the risk of DNA uh, mutations. There are checkpoints are actually um, affected as well. So abnormal cells can then actually develop inflammatory in, like inflammation, I think is one of the biggest problems in cancer development and one of the biggest things to try and mitigate. We still need acute inflammation, but this low-grade chronic inflammation is, is the problem. And that's where like the stress comes into, into play, but definitely the post-viral syndrome as well. Yeah, and it's it really, uh, I guess, emphasises to us how much we need to remind our patients that treatment doesn't necessarily, it, it, it's not necessarily, I guess, in only in that acute stage, you really need that uh, once you've sort of resolved an acute issue, an acute viral infection, whatever it is, that you still need to be supported through the recovery, that convalescence phase that I think is important and sometimes just quite neglected because of the stresses of modern life. Absolutely, totally agree. Yeah. And most people then just get on and think, you know, that what is that whole saying, soldier on? <laughs> We won't quote the ad, but yeah, <laughs> it's so true. And it's it's almost like there's a bit of perceived weakness in a, a longer recovery time. You're expected to just get on with things. And it's, I think, you know, a good reminder for us that our bodies are smart and adaptation is there for a reason and we don't want to mal-adapt. We want to make sure that we're recovering fully and completely and Speaking of, I guess, adaptation, do you have any favourite herbal medicines that you might use to deal with post-viral syndrome? Look, I might come back to my favourites again, which is, happens to be astragalus and the medicinal mushrooms. Of course. <laughs> uh, probably, I know one of my two biggest ones, I guess, for that. And it would then depend on the actual person themselves. You know, it will come into play where I will use uh, Siberian ginseng um, or rhodiola or cisandra. Um, I will also use nigella uh, quite a bit, sativa. So it's still very individual to the person, but my go-to, so the first two always for post-viral is astragalus and medicinal mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, beautiful favourites. And just on the topic of astragalus, you did mention its impact upon the spleen. So could you maybe just spend a little bit of time explaining to our listeners why the function of the spleen is so important in this oncology, yes. I guess, prevention population? Yeah, I think most people forget that the spleen plays a major role and it's one of our major um, immune organs, you know. So without a spleen, like I have a number of patients who, who have to have their spleen removed and in doing so they have to have all these vaccines and stuff beforehand that, have to be on antibiotics for the rest of their life, according to the doctors. So a spleen plays a major part in our immune system. And I, when I say that, yes, it does, you know, it does get rid of all our dead cells and all that type of thing as well. But a majority of our immune system actually functions because of our spleen. So particularly our, um, our monocytes. And so, our, uh, you know, we have the innate immunity and that's where it comes into play so if our spleen isn't actually functioning and it, it decreases in size which can happen 
ecoactives that I've actually talked about, actually making it, it work again a lot more efficiently, bringing it back up into size, making sure that it's functioning properly, actually increases or can increase our immunity by up to 60 to 70%. Wow. So, and ashwagandha has the ability to do that. That's pretty exciting. Another another massive tick for that favourite herbal medicine of ours too. Um, and on that, what you're talking about with Kristen before around post-viral, um, that the really important point around clearing an infection initially, so almost in that acute phase, and then supporting that recovery post-virally, post-bacterial, post-stealth, whatever it is. I honestly think that as um, naturopaths and herbalists, we can educate our patients in that moment. So I think what we do is we often give them that acute treatment and they feel better and go on with their lives, like you're saying, but we can actually step in there in that acute treatment. We can either give them another bottle of herbs to say, call me when you're feeling a bit better. I'm going to talk you through this, or we can prepare them for what our next step might be with that. Because I think, you know, we have researched since 2015. So the last six or so years we've researched infections and the impact that has on building blocks to chronic disease and Clearly, cancer is one of those major conditions that we're, we're sort of talking about, as well as autoimmunity, et cetera. So the clearance of that pathogen is only step one, in a way. It's kind of like, how do we reduce or support the, the, um, the rest of it? Sorry, that's just a, a passionate thing of mine. So I wanted to get my two cents worth. Um, but I think we can kind of prepare our patients or our clients for that full recovery front up. Oh. Totally agree. And that's the thing. Like, yes, you can come there. We give you acute things. We actually help you get over. But before they actually leave and say, when you start to feel better, it's not finished yet. And what we need to do then is actually help to, to build you back up so that it doesn't actually continue. So there are there is a next phase. So make sure you do come back. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Not just like get on with life. Yeah, that's right. And put it in your diary. Remind the patient two weeks later. Say, how are you going? Let's check in. Anyway, we can only do what we can only do. But I love that point. I think it's a really strong point. And I just want to stay on that line of infection for a little bit more because of those building blocks to chronic disease we we're talking about. I mean, you might have already done this and just say so, Janet, but with other infections outside of viral infections, so things like bacterial, stealth, and look, even fungal and you know, I'm, I'm sort of also thinking of mould and mycotoxins and that sort of impact. How do they contribute to cancer development? Exactly the same way that viruses do. Yeah. So, you know, the immune system is still actually involved. It's still actually having to fight things. Mm -hmm. um, if you add mould into it too, you know, I've actually got a mould allergy. So I come out in hives and a whole range of different <laughs> things and I get exposed to it. Um, yeah. Thanks to being over into Canada, where I actually found it and had a whole body one. Wow. Um, yeah, so our body is actually reacting to it. And if we're continually exposed and our body can't get over it, then that's also going to weaken our immune system and our cellular activities and, again, cause that low-grade infl inflammatory response. So it's not just a like a post-viral syndrome. It's any type of exposure that can have that long-term effect. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, microbes are so intelligent. They are mm -hmm. so intelligent. Once they are in that body of ours or in the cells, they can basically switch on, switch off any of those sort of molecular signaling or specific cells to dampen an innate immune response, aren't they, you know, to, to encourage that low-grade chronic inflammation. So it is, a, it is a, a really interesting topic, one I'm quite passionate about. And um, thank you for reiterating how that works in cancer development as well and not to kind of overlook the history there. The patients in case that rings true for them yeah 
Now, this is a broad question and you <laughs> can just throw a couple if you like at me, but in terms of targeting an active infection, say if there's a, bac- a, a bacterial infection or, you know, a fungal infection or something, is there a, a go-to antimicrobial herb that you tend to like or even ones that are constituent-based, so berberine, high essential oil? You know, how, how do you, what are your favourites there? Berberine's always my favourite. Like I used to always love golden seal, but obviously with um, the the stock and the requirements these days, it's not able to be used. But, I mean, there are still a number of berberine-based uh, herbs that we can actually use, and I think they have, it's still one of my favourite go-tos in regards to that. Um, I will actually use holy basil, and definitely for um, fungal, horopedo is my go-to. Mm. I mean, portiaco used to be it, but when I actually did the research and found out more about horopedo, it's definitely my, it's always my go-to. Um, both internally and topically, because it's although it's the, one of the most disgusting herbs I think I've ever tasted, um, it works really efficiently. <laughs> it really does for it. But there's a whole range. Like there's so many antimicrobial herbs, and it really does depend on, on like I said, it is broad topic. It depends on what the actual person has to to what I will actually use in regards to that. Yeah. So, and you know, this is to me one of the areas that naturopaths and herbalists actually have a fantastic opportunity. I mean, we have like we this whole section we, we do, but you know, antibiotics don't work a lot for a lot of people and a lot of the other treatments. And that's because of obviously that exposure and stuff like that. We have the ability to use a whole range of different microbes or antimicrobial herbal medicines and interchange it so there isn't a resistance that actually comes up. Perfect. And yep. and that actually works on a whole range of, of different like mechanisms of action, and that's what we actually need to do. So you, it's always choosing if I'm going to do it at least four different antimicrobial herbs in a mix to have different mechanisms of action. Brilliant, brilliant, and it does. You're absolutely right. It's such a broad question, so I do apologise because it's dependent <laughs> on the you know dependent on the location of the infection, the person itself, type of infection, etc. But I love that, and and holy basil and um, um, sorry, horopedo also pair beautifully together in that way too. And even though golden seal we obviously don't utilise as as much as we used to historically due to it being endangered, etc., and those issues around that, but we have coptus, which actually has even higher level of berberine. So you know we can we can utilise that herbal medicine as a replacement and as one we might rotate with others. I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about telomerase activity have i said that correctly this is what chris and i said telomerase how do we say that telomerase thank you guys yeah, <laughs> i even went to mr google and went telomerase and got the <laughs> <laughs> but i was just wondering because again this is something you mentioned in the webinar so i'm not going to have a spoil alert and let you know i'll let that happen in the webinar and people can listen to that practice can listen to that but in regards to herbal medicines, again, what are your favourite herbs or herbs that you might go to to maintain that telomerase activity, you know, just in support of cancer prevention? Yes. I'm hoping what people know what telomeres are. Oh, yeah. Explain that. <laughs> so the little ends on, yeah. on our DNA, that if they shorten, that also shortens our, our lifespan. So they're considered to be anti-ageing mm-hmm. um, parts. and the shorter they actually are, the more likely that we're going to have DNA mutations and mm. abnormal cell development. Mm. So it sort of comes back to your anti-aging herbs that we sort of used before. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all usually work on the telomeres as well. Yeah. So probably my biggest one um, is cordyceps. Yeah. That I would actually use. Yeah, just on that too. And that's a central. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's maybe what I'm thinking of as well. But also things like green tea or Jap knotweed might sit well in that space too, like those high antioxidant kind of activity. Absolutely. Actually, green tea definitely works. On, um, actually, and not and the knotweed, both of them actually work extremely well mm. on the on the telomeres. Mm. Um, and green tea also then increases both like your P53 and P21 activity, mm. especially as we age. So if you want to add that into that antioxidant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just drop that back. Yeah. <laughs> it's great that there's so many genoprotective herbs that we can actually use. It's just such a wonderful concept to me to think that I can I can take things that actually protect my my DNA, my, you know, the things that are that are making me. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Epigenetics is everything that we actually are exposed to. And that and herbal medicine has a huge epigenetic effect. Oh yeah. And there's so many, like you said, there's so many to choose from. Chaga is another one that we've recently introduced to our range that I had no idea beforehand how much uh, interesting preclinical research about the like the genetic sort of protective potential of chaga, which I guess makes sense as well because it's another beautiful antioxidant. But so many to think of and so many to choose from. It's very exciting. And I just wanted to talk to you about something else, Janet, that you mentioned in the webinar that both Julianne and I found fascinating, where you, you were talking about that when the body develops a solid tumour, that we actually no longer recognise that tumour as a threat. It sort of becomes no different from self. So could you explain this just in a little bit of detail and why this happens? Yeah, definitely. Now, this is an interesting one because I hear a lot of people say, well, if our body development, our body can get rid of it. You know, yes, sometimes it, our body can actually get rid of them, but a lot of the time they actually can't. And the reason being is that once a solid tumour has actually developed, it has so many mutations in there that it actually the, the, the immune system can't even recognise it. So basically it just ignores it and then says it's just part of itself. So that's why it's then allowed to grow. And then when it starts to grow, it develops its own little microenvironment, which also helps it to grow um, and then extend. And the other thing is, is that the when, once it's starting to grow, it actually engages our immune system, so our monocytes, to be on their side and actually help their growth. So people think that, you know, the immune system is going to, to fight it and know that type of stuff. Not necessarily. Um, the immune system in, in some of our, our states actually helps it grow. So the monocytes actually get rid of different things, allows it, it to develop because it's on their side and it actually works with certain um, molecular activity. That is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy and it just, oh, it really emphasises why we, you know, the benefit of addressing something before it gets to that stage Absolutely. and why that preventative area is so important. So how do you or how can we as practitioners assess this risk and then address it prior to that significant solid tumour formation? Do you use certain herbal medicines to prevent this or what would you normally do? We have cancer cells in our body every day, every one of us. They're circulating all the time. Our, a lot of the time, our immune cells actually pick it up. We have abnormal cells. But what it is is that it needs that perfect storm to actually develop 
So it's not, there's not just one thing that actually helps prevent that. And it comes back to those same pillars that we talked about before, the stress management, the good sleep, the good diet, um, the, the exercise, the enjoyment of life. You know, all of that is actually important. Yes, it's making sure all of those come into place. Then it's actually making sure our body's functioning properly. You know, if there's certain aspects that are, are not working as well, do we need to support the immune system? Do we need to support the our, our stress response so that our body is actually functioning correctly? So that's actually quite a hard area because I believe that that's very individual for the person at that particular time and that particular state to actually help prevent that going forward. But I think the biggest thing is out of all of it is that, and this is one of the things I do find with a lot of people, people aren't in touch with their bodies anymore. They're not listening um, because there's so much going on and that's that whole head type thing that they're not listening to like sometimes the little things that their body's trying to tell them before something bad actually occurs. So bringing it all back is actually teaching people to actually hear and listen to their body. That's beautifully said and symptoms are the language of the body and it's so nice to think that our body is communicating to us and that we can sit in the body as well as I guess, in the head or in the mind. And that balance is really important with our patients. So I guess it brings it all back to that, you know, individual assessment, that individual um, patient practitioner relationship where you can take a really thorough case history and assess those risks. And, you know, back to that word empower, empower the patient to, uh, you know, build their life so that they can build their health going into the Absolutely. Future. It's really, it's a very exciting topic and we got really excited listening to it. And, and one herb that you mentioned before and also in the webinar uh, was nigella. So nigella sativa in cancer prevention, which I think a lot of practitioners are very familiar with nigella in other areas. So perhaps areas of allergy or even uh, infection, perhaps metabolic health. Could you explain maybe why you love to use this herb in this area and how you use it clinically. Now, this is actually quite interesting because once people actually get cancer, nigella is one of the ones that they nearly always get, they always use, but it's not one that's usually thought of as a preventative, which I I think is is a really, it is not, probably what's the word I'm trying to find, you know, it's actually quite detrimental because it has such a preventative effect on so many levels. So all the little hallmarks of cancer development, nigella actually helps to mitigate. So you know what you were just talking about, you know, that prevention type, which is what I said that people need to get in touch with it. It can actually have that beautiful protection on all levels. And that's one of the reasons that I do actually use it. Um, and that's not just, you know, I think... For me, it could be, I have two, that and, and turmeric, unless there's obviously like drug interactions, uh, are two that people can use on a long-term benefit that really help to prevent cancer development on all, like, on all aspects. It's so interesting too that they're both uh, food spices and, you know, traditionally used in the diet. So yes. it would make, make a bit of sense in that regard as well. 
I know. I think that's what stops um, a lot of Indian people with getting cancer. Although now a lot of Indians actually have Western diet, you know, that's just going to, that doesn't mean. (laughs) It is interesting. And um, on turmeric, there has been some whispers out there, I guess, with turmeric having a purported estrogenic effect. And I'd love you to debunk that myth for all of our listeners, particularly our practitioners. Today. Absolutely. This is one that I have fights with pharmacists about um, <laughs> on, a, on a regular basis. <laughs> but, yes, estrogen has been put out there as, as a potential having estrogenic effect mm. and that the coumarin that's actually in there is a potential phytoestrogen. However, what's actually been found in a lot of in vitro type studies and also studies that have, that have been done on people with breast cancer in particular in conjunction with medication that they're actually taking, be it like a CERN, like a selective estrogen receptor modulator or an aromatase inhibitor, it, there's no estrogenic effect at all. If anything, it actually reduces est- um, the estrogen alpha response from it. So there's a huge amount of studies that actually have completely debunked the fact that it has an estrogenic type effect. And there's a couple of studies that have actually come out and said that, and that's what people are grabbing onto. But what you'll actually find, and that's where um, there needs to like be a proper review done of this, and it's definitely something that's on my radar to to do it, is that one or two studies, and they say, well, that's it. Well, that's actually not the case. So that's unfortunately the, the the way herbal medicine often goes, though, um, if we do get, you know, I, I mean, like juniper comes to mind as one that's, that's a scary herb to use due to one actually poor case report. Um, so there's, there's a lot of herbs we can talk about in the same vein. But I think particularly for cancer prevention, like even using turmeric in your food, like we want to embrace, we want to embrace this herb. So thank you for raising that in the webinar and then just allowing us to have a quick discussion around it today yeah one of the terms I adored in your webinar and you mentioned it before and I had a big smile as you're talking about it is is talking to people about the joy of life and embracing that and you know I'm really interested into how you raise that with your clients how you how you bring that discussion to the forefront with them and then and also do you use, and I'm not talking antidepressive, sort of antidepressant, medica- um, not medication, sorry, herbal medicines, but do you utilise herbs at all in that way for that sort of enjoyment of life? Actually, it's one of my big ones. And first, to answer your question, one of the things I do talk to them is a bit about those five pillars that I've, that I've mentioned. And, and I always bring up the enjoyment of life as being one of the most important type things. And it's one of the ones that I find that's lacking in a lot of people's areas you know and it's probably very prevalent at the moment considering the lockdowns and and what we're actually experiencing that enjoyment of life is actually limited however in saying that people can still find things that they enjoy that they can do in their own home and what they they need to actually bring that in a little bit more um what i i will say um for the people in melbourne particular that you have been exceptionally good at doing that (laughs) (laughs) So, <laughs> which I really love and I think that's what's actually got you through a lot. How do I bring that into it? Um, I always have that conversation, number one. Uh, do I use herbs? Yes. We're definitely where possible. And it's not always, I'm not talking about antidepressants. Yeah. It's about supporting the actual person and the one that I use a lot is Rufania. Beautiful. Yeah. So, and it's, to me, that's just 
a whole body support nourishing. I love ashwagandha. I think it's one of the most beautiful herbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people just need that little bit of support. Yeah, I agree. I think withane is a hug in a bottle and it's um, it's a beautiful herb. And I also love holy basil for that, particularly those people that can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It really, you know, I know I've noticed that clinically. I've used it. I use it quite a bit. And they just it just switches that mindset around. So if they go for that 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 area where they're not quite seeing the joy or they they can't quite answer that question within a few weeks to month whatever it takes that just turns around and it is often paired with withania so you know and obviously others that are relevant but I appreciate you bringing that to the discussion because I think as naturopaths we forget we look in pathology we look at treatment and we forget that we are these holistic practitioners and the joy of life and and what brings someone joy is a really important question I know when I ask it to patients it's often like a, a confronting question that's why I was interested in how you raise it because you know we're not we don't think enough about it I know sometimes I'm, I'm a very blunt person sometimes <laughs> which I do tell people when they come to see me but <laughs> like I will actually say up front like after I've been talking to them I said you know I think one of the biggest things that's missing is your enjoyment of life I will just come straight out and say yeah. it and yes it is confronting and stuff for it but you know a lot of them will actually say you know what you're right mm. yeah and they're the things we need to change. They're the things we need to change to embrace life, you know, so it's it's so important, so important. Janet, before we wind up, are there any other points or notes you'd like to give our listeners? I think we've covered so many. I know. Um, on so many different levels. But I think one of the things you just said to me is really important. We're holistic practitioners. And we should practice holistically. It's not just about, like you said, the pathology or where the state is. My biggest thing and probably my biggest bugbear is that we need to listen to the patient, we, that person. That person in front of us is the most important person that we need to listen. We need to not only listen but hear mm. where that they're coming from, what's going on for them, what they need at that moment, and be really present. And a lot of the time people need that. They... they they're so sick of being counted as a number. They want to be heard as a person. So that that would be my biggest thing that I'd like to. Uh-huh. And you know what? That patient-practitioner um, relationship is really, really important, more than what people actually think. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. That's a fantastic statement. I hope every practitioner listening embraces it and remembers it because I know when we started out to be naturopaths, that's what, something we remember Um just come back to why reasons why we're doing this. Janet, I'm so appreciative of your time, your knowledge, your experience. Um, you mentioned in your webinar that epigenetics is a discussion and a webinar on its own. So just watch this space is all I'm going to say because it would be so good <laughs> to have a discussion, particularly herbally, around epigenetics. Um, but thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy lady and we really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love speaking with you. So. <laughs> Thanks, Janet. <laughs> for having me.